When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gremlins, and I'm like, I saw it three times in the theater. Really? Same week. How old were yeah, you? Yeah, and uh, so 84, I was 12. 12, it figures. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, was, I was like, man, it, it was just a wild ride. And I was, I was just asking Josh, I go, didn't it have a Christmas element to it? Because I was thinking about Christmas Story, too, which were around the same period yeah, of time. Both right. of my yeah, the Christmas element is one of the reasons I think it's still popular. This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Well, Albert, thanks for, thanks for joining us, man. We're... Um, very, very psyched to have you. Uh, I won't, well, I won't you, tell anyone in our audience what you're doing right now. We have young, impressionable children there. But, uh, don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do, make what, sure it's marijuana. What were we? We were, oh, God, we watched The Candidate last night, which I've not seen in a million years. God, I haven't and seen it, that in a long time. It's just hilarious. You just have this, you know, people walk into, you know, a stranger's house. They lit up a cigarette. They walk into a crowded room. They lit up a cigarette. <laughs> I was like, oh, I remember that world. But that's what I'm people. A, that's what people did in old movies, especially in the forties. There yeah, was always yeah. a full stocked bar in everybody's yeah. living. <laughs> I made the mistake. My brother and I made the mistake of doing that in Johnny Depp's house mm. because he showed us. He showed us how to roll this special cigarette that we started rolling. We go to his house and we just start lighting up. He's like, No, 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 no. I got kids. You, you can't smoke inside. Like, oh, <laughs> sorry. Oops. Um, well, we're uh, uh, doing my typical half-assed introduction. We're here with Albert Hughes. I mean, I, I, it, 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 I can't. Uh, we're, we're very, very happy. Very enough happy said. to have you. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> I yeah, still, right. It's boggling to me. This is a terrible thing to say to anyone, but we're, we're probably around the same age. It's, I still think <laughs> of Menace to Society as a fairly new film. <laughs> I, I know it's funny. I was, I was debating a friend of mine with, with yesterday and he was talking about the age range that probably would be fans of that type of movie that period and he was like 45 to 75 and i'm like uh you know I'm, I'm not one to thump my chest about my movies at all but i gotta disagree with you when when a movie's put into a certain classification or or it's considered a classic or whatever you know i got 15 year old kids still coming up to me about that and i'm still shocked i'm like playing basketball with them at you know in la at the la fitness and i'm like how the, how the hell do you know that film and and Joe, I'm sure you get this all the time. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you know that? Um, so it's still it's still shocking, you know. Um, yeah. Whatever. Um, it's uh, well, they have an afterlife, you know. I mean, uh, more so than they used to when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, if they're loved, if they're loved, it seems like you know, like of course your movie I just talked about, like it's loved. Well, they're and, handed down, you know, from yeah. You know, from the father shows the son. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the mother shows the daughter. Um, the, you know, even when we were talking about the Christmas story, you know, that, that's like gremlins and that are like the kind of seminal yearly movies you, you see on TV. 
Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's other related movies like Joel Silver's, uh, you know, he always has a Christmas element to some of his action movies. Yes. Like Die, Die Hard. Die Hard, yeah. It's, uh, it's hilarious. But yeah, it's just bizarre because, you know, when you see movies that came out when you were a fully formed adult and it's now been that many years, it's sort of. Well, the, worked, the, I, the real question is, were you a fully formed adult? I guess not. Yeah. No. And then I worked with Lorenz Tate uh, last year and I was just like. He looks the same. He looks yeah, the same. I know. It's terrifying. He's we had him playing a young guy in his <laughs> 20s. It's like no one had a problem. <laughs> I look at him and I go, and even the, the other kid, Tyron Turner, uh, they have an age an inch. Yeah, you know, I don't there's know, a painting I don't know in a is. there's a painting in an attic somewhere of just like a <laughs> really really old wizened uh, Lorenz Tate somewhere. But, Meanwhile, uh, I got to use hair color and shave my head. <laughs> uh, well, you look great. You don't look a day over thirty two. Um, I shaved for the Zoom call. <laughs> I do that too, and I appreciate it. I I, <laughs> I shave, I shower. It's like it's a way of maintaining some sort of semblance of order in the universe. I think I put a blazer on for you guys. Much appreciated, sir. Much appreciated. So are you guys are you guys locked down in Prague? No, that's what's interesting. Every time I talk to are you guys both in LA? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Every time I talk to people in the States, mostly it's LA people and some New York people, I don't realize how bad it is out, out there, except for when I watch CNN and CNBC or MSNBC. Out here, if you guys were here now, it would feel like there was no pandemic. Mm. And it scares me in some ways because we they did do the right thing, like most European countries, they really locked down and mandatory masks and all that contact tracing. But once that lifted, everybody's still hugging and kissing, and I'm getting into arguments every day with people about, no, I'm not going to shake your hand. Are you kidding me? Like, you're not a fucking man. Oh, excuse me, can I curse? I'm sorry. Oh, yes. yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> um, you're not a fucking man. I go, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to kill mine and your grandmother. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't want to debate this. So there is this attitude going on out here that's similar to American kind of carelessness. Um, but they're going to mandate, I think, again, from September to March, time oh, really? flu season, um, yeah. mandatory masks and public transportation, restaurants, and all that stuff. Now, I went to Germany because my pastime recently in the last 10, 15 years is mushroom picking, porcinis and, and whatnot. And I don't do it here because it's a national pastime. I go over the border to Germany where it's not a national pastime. And, and Germans are very strict. Like, you can't walk around the restaurant without the math, but once you sit down, you can take it off. Some restaurants you have to sign in and give them your phone number so they can contact trace you. Mm. And they have the hand spray everywhere. I mean, it's amazing the difference between Germany and Czech Republic. Um, they're very strict over there. Wow. Yeah. Well, but they've well, held it down, haven't they? They've done a great job, yeah. Germany especially, yeah. It's interesting talking to people who live in countries that have something vaguely resembling leadership. Um, is it sort of uh... <laughs> well, I mean, it's, funny, it's funny you say that because they have their version of Trump or the prime minister. I forgot what the position is here. And he's kind of right leaning and you know, a little fascistic. And that's a word. And the, the middle, the kind of middle of the country, the peasants are the ones that kind of vote for him. Either they're, you know, against their own self-interest. Um, despite that, despite that, uh, they they listen to the science. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a. Most well, that's what era. they don't do here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they I mean, just they've just turned the whole concept of wearing masks into this political statement. That yeah, no nobody you, and you never hear anybody do the the, the, the right retort to that. And they say it's more freedom. It's like, well, there's a speed limit. You have to wear your seatbelt. You have to wear a helmet yeah. if you're on a, a motorcycle. Yeah. You know, uh, you don't want your dentist or your 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 doctor not wearing a mask when they're operating on you. Do you? Try smoking um, in a movie theater. Yeah, claiming it's your freedom. There you go. Yeah. The smoking thing. So <laughs> there's these like simple things, these laws that we have to follow to protect each other. No drunk driving. 
another blow up. Yeah. <laughs> aren't I free? Aren't I free to get drunk and drive my own car? If we're talking about free freedom. I actually, you're you're convincing me. You should be. I think uh, <laughs> yeah, mow down as many people as you can. Honey, burn the masks. We're free now. Um, I go to well, Riverside, Irvine first. If I'm going to do that. <laughs> Uh, well, Albert, um, you're a movie guy. <laughs> we, we had, I thought I was just going to have like a 30 second conversation with Albert to sort of figure out some, some themes and topics. And we ended up talking for like 20 minutes. This is, um, you, you are, you are, I mean, it's obviously you make movies, but, um, uh, you are a film lover, man. Um, do you want to, Oh, uh, but there's a, there's a distinction though. I want to just interrupt on that one. It's like, okay. I, I bump into guys and you guys are probably like the guys I bump into that I admire where they're, they're real cinephiles, you know? And my brother and I have always, as we were growing up, like felt a little embarrassed that we, we didn't feel like we were true cinephiles, you know? Even though right. I took the film history and film documentary history and all that in film school, and I have my favorites. And I, I just don't feel as, as informed as a lot of people I bump into. Um, I'm a film lover, but I'm not a cinephile, I don't think. Well, that's, you know, one of the things we're trying to do here is, is, is break down that distinction and get to, because um, it's amazing how often we have guests who are like, you know, love, love, love movies. That's why they do this. But they're like, I just, I don't talk about them the way I'm supposed to. And you're like, good. That's, we, we're trying to get across to people that, that in the end, this is a personal experience, how it, how it connects to you, how it relates to you and how you uh, uh, process all this stuff is, is what we're talking about. It's um, uh, not a know, film history class. Yeah, which is why yeah. even if like 12 guests bring up the same movie, it's a completely different conversation every time because, you know, they're not giving us the academic, you know, read on it. They're like, this is why I love this movie, which is why it's so interesting. So, um, yes, good. I'm, there, I mean, there's like, you know, if you think about, you know, when you were younger watching movies, especially mm -hmm. in my generation, you, you had access to VHS tapes and you're able to watch it over and over and over again as opposed to the generation before us, we had to go to the theater like I did with Gremlins and watch it three times in one week. Mm -hmm. The same thing I did with uh, um, Raiders Lost Ark. Um, I mean, that's interesting. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll segue in by, by the movie film argument, first of all, it'll dovetail out of this, is, you know, a babysitter took me and my brother to go see Raiders Lost Ark. We didn't know what the hell it was. We just saw it was a period piece in the first two minutes. And we're like, fuck this. It's like, what are you thinking bringing us to a period movie, right? <laughs> and then that boulder came crashing down after him. And we, from that moment on, we were blown away. We're like, what the hell is this? And we stayed in the movie theater as they cleaned it up for the second showing. Mm. And then the same thing we did with Gremlins. We went back the next day and we went back the next day. Um, and that was the first movie that made us go, oh my God, this is the power of like, you know, magical kind of kind of cinema, and 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 we barely kind of share that story when we talk to people um, because as you get older, you start getting a little more snooty about you know, well, that was a movie. This yes. one's a, this one's a film. Yes, you should you should have <laughs> Godard <laughs> should have been your introduction to the joy. Yeah, of yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I have like two lists. Uh, I have like a movie list, and uh, just to be fair, and then I always have like a my, my film list. Uh -oh. You know and. And then you look at your age from when, you know, when you're from like, I think, you know, 10, 12, 13, all the way up to your 18, you can repeatedly watch these movies and know all the lines like Scarface or Goodfellas or, you know, those type of movies. And then when you get older, you don't do that. Maybe people do, but I don't as much. Yeah. I, I use them as research material 
but I don't sit there and just watch them over and over and over again. You know? So maybe that's just the old age. Yeah, there's something there because um, you get, uh, or maybe your passions are sort of more raw when you're a kid. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also new, you know, I mean, you're seeing it for the first time. It's like, it's a, it's a new experience. And then when you revisit it, when you're older, it's sort of a nostalgic experience. Yeah. I mean, and you look at things, we talked about this, uh, Josh, the other day ago, that, um, when you look at movies differently, when you get older mm-hmm. and, and you look at like Kubrick's full metal jacket, you know, when you're younger, you're really entertained by that drill sergeant. When you're older, you may appreciate the back half of the movie. The same mm-hmm. thing with Clockwork Orange, you know, you're, 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 Brought by and entertained by the mayhem of the crew uh, in the first part of the movie, as opposed to you know him in a correctional facility and you know getting revenge put on put on him by his guys when he gets out. Right. You may appreciate that when you get older, um, um, basically. So that's also the the other dynamic. It's like, and then there's my favorite movie. It would when my favorite movie did to me was Midnight Cowboy. I saw on like KTLA LA or KCOP, mm. one of those off stations, and it was you know, heavily censored. And I was in my bedroom. I probably was 17 years old. And um, I saw it and I remember being really moved by it. But not until I got later into my 20s when I got, I think I got the laser disc um, back. I don't know if Criterion did. Yeah, they did. I remember that. It was an early. um, And I watched that and and it it bumped a lot of number ones out of of my way because it used to be like Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, because I was big into Scorsese. And then I watch this movie and I go, man, what, what a movie. And, and now I, I'm, I've gotten to these big debates with my daughter who took film theory. Or I forgot what the hell it's called. I paid a lot of money for it at LMU. <laughs> <laughs> She's the only one that has a degree in the, the filmmaking family. And um, I debate her on that movie about whether or not it's two heterosexual men in, in, in a love affair or, or two repressed homosexuals in a love affair and her argument is they're repressed homosexuals and i'm like no that's not an interesting story what's more interesting is that they're heterosexual and they love each other and they come from two different worlds and and it's just a beautiful movie no dad you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong and then one day i bump into um, a film critic who uh sent an article to me about um the movie in the book and he goes i'm afraid to tell you your daughter's right it's it's a it's a love story between two repressed homosexuals because that's what the book was explicitly and, oh really and, and you know and the director and the director you know it's famously Schlesinger, yeah he's also yeah, yeah. Gay, gay yeah. director he's a great great director he's right-leaning i, I heard later he did some um uh, political ads for margaret thatcher um which is mind-boggling oh. but <laughs> uh, you know when they get older you know what <sighs> Careful, like Careful. Rudy Giuliani, you know, these guys <laughs> that start getting, they just start, they just start, I don't know what's going on. Like Rudy's one that is like, what the hell happened there? He was so much against the mafia and doing all that stuff. I know it's not talking movies. Now all of a sudden he's part of the mafia. Right. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. The, uh, allegedly. <laughs> or metaphorically, I guess, more, more like. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I you know, it's funny. I never think of Midnight Cowboy as an adaptation. Of course, it is, and it, it, it's it's not one of those films I saw and loved as a kid that I felt compelled to seek out the book for some reason. But oh, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just I love the film. Yeah, you don't want to see how much how much they changed it or what was better or what was. Um, but that's no, interesting. I, I mean, 
it's uh, it's also I I always find that stuff arguable because it's not if it's not textual it's up to your interpretation, you know. Mm-hmm. And well, and, that's the argument that we had. Which which is a more interesting movie to believe in or theory? And and she passionately debates me, thinking it's more interesting that more interesting that they're uh, repressed. Well, more and interesting I, to I, her. More interesting to, to her. her. Yeah, to her, to to me, it's like you know that two men can have a love for each other that's that kind of deep, right? You know, and and, and circumstance too that caused it. You know, and I borrowed yeah. a lot of that relationship from my last movie, which is between a boy and a dog, a wolf. Mm. You know, and I go, oh, you know, New York City is the the wild. The wolf belongs in the wild. The wolf is Rezzo Rizzo. Here's you know <laughs> uh, Angelina Jolie's father. I'm not going to name him. Uh, here's Angelina Jolie. Father, this naive kid coming from wherever, and he gets scammed by the the scammer at first, thinking that he's going to make it big in the wild, and he, he's not. And then they both, out of circumstance, have to depend on each other to survive. And then in the end, you know, the wolf has to die, and Rats of Rizzo has to die. Uh. You know? um, so that that's how influential that movie was. <laughs> uh, that's great. So so how many times did you just like watch Midnight Cowboy over and over and over? With, uh... It, just, it was a thing that I would do every year almost as I got older and I started appreciating, you know, when you get older and you start having relationships with women, especially, um, you know, there's a dip, different way to see the movie now. You know, yeah. he's trying to be a hustler and these, how these women are turning on him and how one cares for him, how one doesn't, you know. And um, I just, I guess, as you get into adulthood, you just look at, at things differently. I just, I liked it stylistically too. You yeah. know? And I, I think that when I saw it, I was blown away because I go, oh, I don't think there would be a taxi driver without this movie. Mm. Uh, there are just some textural stuff going on here. And there wouldn't be some Oliver Stone kind of editing patterns if it weren't for this movie. You know, right. they're cutting from day to night as he's listening to the radio, walking down Times Square, you know, the, the kind of experimental, um, psychedelic nature of that party in the movie. Um, and and, and I, I have a weakness for, for style. And I don't, I don't believe what they teach in film schools about editing and camera and all this other stuff being invisible. I, don't, I just don't believe in that. I believe it can be totally visible. If it, if it wasn't, then there would be no Hitchcock. There would be no Scorsese. You know, there would be not a lot of these greats, you know, the French New Wave especially too, or yeah. Battleship Potemkin or Metropolis. Or, you know, there's a ton of movies that, uh, you know, are standing on the visual and the experimental and, and also the editorial kind of, I guess, self-consciousness, I guess, you know, in a way. Um, and, and that movie was one. I mean, it, at the same time, I was lost in the movie. But I also appreciate yeah. that you, you know there's a director there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I have, uh, I have this on the brain because we just had Martin Short on the show. So I keep thinking of SCTV more than usual. But did you ever see the uh, Midnight Cowboy 2 with Dr. Tongue? <laughs> oh, I have to see that. <laughs> Got a good I just remember... That. I just remember they, the uh, Mar- I think it was Martin Short that did um, the imitation of uh, Joel Silver um, on SETV. It called it like the Something Siegel Show. And oh, it was done in the, I forgot what the, the Marty Siegel Show, I forgot what the name of it is. And I'm, I'm really good friends with Joel Silver. Strangely enough, we're completely different personalities, but he's, he's, a, good, he's a good friend of mine. And, and I, I met him later. I met him early in my career, but really got to know him later life and they he nailed him mm-hmm. he, <laughs> that's funny. no no it was, rick moranis, it was rick moranis that did it 
Oh, oh, yes. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I know which, which, um, yeah. damn it, I'm blanking on this show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, is there a producer who's been more comically represented in more films and TV shows than Joel Silver? I can't, I can't think of one. Anymore. Probably not. It's probably and, not. And, True romance. And, and it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> action. And he was in, uh, Who Framed, he was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, that's right, in the beginning, right? Yelling at Roger Rabbit. Yelling at Roger Rabbit, that's right. (laughs) And, you know, the thing that that stands me, though, about him is, like, you know, he's a legend who hasn't really gotten his due because of his oversized personality. And, you know, the business have kind of outgrown that type of personality, I guess, you know? And I look at him and go, God, he owned the 80s. And even part of the 90s when he came back from Matrix and stuff like that. But he, he's not given the respect. And I understand, like, the pros and cons of the personality kind of thing, you know. And, you know, some of the horror stories. And I've been on the receiving end of some of those horror stories. Um, but what he did for what he did for movie making, I'll call it movies, um, and, and just being around him hearing all the stories yeah. is, is pretty incredible. And he watches a movie every night in his home cinema. I believe it. He has it. this really it. amazing, amazing um, theater and every night he watches the latest five movies that came out that week and sometimes if you're sitting with him his family leaves and they're like disinterested in, in watching the movie with him and it's just me and him and he'll go oh yeah that person's gonna die in the second act and <laughs> this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and sure enough it happens that's great my, my wife's really good at that it makes me insane although she she blew it on the candidate she was like oh he's gonna get shot at the end of this and i was like no it's so much worse it's so much worse <laughs> and you knew already <laughs> uh cool well what's what's uh yeah well take us through another one well i got my list here there, there's yeah. there's one i told you in that email that um and i probably won't make it through all of these but um this belgium movie Called, in 1992 called Man Bites Dog. Oh, yes. or, or, or it happened in my neighborhood. <laughs> Joe. Joe. Well, I, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sore point for me because when I was making a picture at Warner Brothers with a particularly horrible executive, uh, I should have realized when I walked into his office and he had a gigantic three sheet on the wall of Man Bites Dog. You know, and we're not going to talk about that guy's name. I know who you're talking about. And because- you, know, you know who it is. And, and the design of the poster is the guy is shooting down into the bottom of the poster. The pacifier. Blood yeah. coming up and a pacifier, yeah. which, which yeah. actually okay. represents the movie very well. Very well. But sure. the fact that this guy, who was, by the way, producing an animated cartoon movie, was, <laughs> was, this, was his, this was a movie that was so favorite but, that he put this on his wall. Yeah, and who turned him on to that film was me and my brother, okay? And... Uh, and, and, and one of my favorite people uh, as of late because I had a bad experience with him on my last movie and um, I'll, I'll say I'll say something pretty harsh I'm, I'm kind of glad my movie caused him to be run out of the business okay moving on no, uh, <laughs> Wait, I just want to say Joe because we've discussed this a couple times before are you we finally have closure yes I feel oh, I oh, I, I, <laughs> but the thing the thing about Man Bites Dog is that, yes yes, is yes I, yeah. I saw it in Lemley's or however you pronounce that, that theater yeah Lamel's, Lamel's, Lemley's, Lemley's, they used to have that art house one at the Virgin Megastore on the corner of Sunset and Crescent or whatever yeah, that Sunset is. Sunset Five, you know. Yep. Yeah, Sunset Five. I uh, was with my brother, um, and there was nobody in the theater. We start watching this. You know, the guy kills midgets, kids, women. You know, old ladies with heart problems screaming at them. You know, all kinds of sadistic, comical, dark, comical stuff. And it came upon the scene where uh, they barge in on a couple having sex. 
and he, you know, it's a rape scene and the crew take part in it. And I drew the line. I was like, oh, oh, this is fucked up. I can't watch this. You know, there's just something about rape that I just can't watch in a movie. Um, and I walked out and my brother walked out. And, you know, a few months later, I got on a laser disc. I go, I really want to examine why did I draw the line there? I was morally okay with every midget yeah, or baby. <laughs> yes. babies. You know, I was okay with all that laughing hysterically, but I drew the line at the, at the rape. And I go, that says more about me um, than, than, it, than the film, you know, however the film affected me. It, it was actually saying something about me. And then I finished the rest of the film and I realized that the part of the, and it's just me, part of the whole thing is com, complicit, you know, being complicit in this activity. And the crew were complicit. And yeah. the audience is complicit. And it's an indictment on the audience and violence and all this other crazy stuff. And it's really ingenious the way they, they, they use the minimal budget as a documentary kind of spinal tap on, on a petty killer. You know? And, and the, the inside jokes really, really resonated with me. Like There was a competing camera crew following another killer, um, and they ran into each other at a warehouse and had a big shootout. And the sound man was on the second floor, the camera was on the first floor, and our hero... Or, protagonist antagonist was on the third floor and the sound and picture and everything didn't match. And then finally they cornered the other camera crew. Uh, Remy takes the camera out of the, the guy's hand and says, uh, I think that was his name. Remy looks at the, the director and says, look, I got a camera just like you. And he goes, no, that's a video camera. And he just <laughs> drops a camera question. He shoots a guy in the stomach. Now that's a real film school kind of attitude. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, 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 you've left out the part that, that it's not just a rape. It's a rape of a torso. They've actually cut this woman in half. Well, that was the next morning oh. after the nighttime scene. That was, that's what made me walk out, was they dismembered. Can't this imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I was like, dramatically erased this scene uh, from my memory. And, 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 and it, was, it was, the scene was banned in certain countries. Like, they took it out, you know. And, <laughs> and, and the poster you're referring to, uh, Joe, I think on that poster it says like it won and won an award at Cannes in 1992. Sure, yeah, right there in the bottom of the poster, you know. And and for you for for it to be such a violent film, um, and be European, you know, it's not a traditional thing that they freak off of. They they're more about love and sex and other stuff and nudity, without without just a you know except for uh, Lupe San. Um, I don't know. I can't. I mean, I live out here and watch a lot of European cinema. Cinema, they're not as fascinated with just over-the-top violence. Mm. Generally, I mean, you get those Italians, especially in the '60s and '70s with the cop films, and uh, uh, God, I still um, Serbian Serbian film will haunt me forever. Oh God, that's a different. That's a different part. I don't know if that is that Europe. Yeah, well, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, different, different part, different part. Um, but yeah, someone's going to excerpt like the 30 seconds of this thing where we're talking about a torso getting raped and laughing. And it's, oh, God. All, all three of us get canceled on the same day. So. <laughs> you can cancel me. I'm in Europe. <laughs> With no hopes of returning. No, I'll return. I just, you guys can't come to Europe. That's what's, that's that's what's right. amazing. No, we, can't go, we can't go anywhere. That's no, you can't go. Did you, see the, did you see the map where all the red countries you can't go to? Uh, oh, I haven't seen a map. I've seen a list. It's so look at the map. Look it up after this. It, everything is red except for, for you, you guys. That's called making America great again. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant solution to the fact that he couldn't figure out how to get a wall built. Um, <laughs> just keep them in. That, that's that's actually, that's a, that's a great line right there. Put that on a bumper sticker. Yeah. It's a painful irony. Um, it'll be funnier when we're through this mess. Uh, what's, what's next, Tom? What's your, <laughs> what, what's next for me is Howard Hawks and Howard Hughes's film, 1932 version of Scarface, yes. which I found my way into from the 1983 version, Brian De Palma, sure. Oliver Stone's script version, um, which I have to talk about that first, because sure. that's the number one repeated most watched movie, you know, for me, my brother, and most of the black hip hop community too, as well, as well as white people. There's no, no, no doubt that it crosses racial lines there. Um, but it's beloved by the, the black culture, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I remember we didn't see it in the theater, but I saw um, Siskel and Ebert reviewing it. And I even remember the scene they were reviewing. It's when he came to Michelle Pfeiffer at the pool, at Frank's house when he was gone. And he, he basically said how much he liked her and asked about kids. And she kind of softened up, right? And they tore the movie to pieces, right? So a week not a week later, it would have to be months later because it was on video. Um, my brother comes running home and he says, I was just over at David Garcia's house and I saw this fucking crazy movie. There's cocaine, there's women, there's violence. There's, I'm like, we're, I'm, I'm there. I run over to David Garcia's house. I put the tape in. I watch it and I go, it's a strange way to start a movie. And get to the end, I'm like, it was fucking amazing. So I run back to my brother, I'm like, it was fucking amazing, but I don't understand why it started like that. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, it started in a scene, money counting in a marriage or something like that. He goes, dude, it's two tapes. You watched the second tape. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go, back then there was no such thing as two tapes. Maybe Gandhi was, but right. we ran on the movie theater. When our mother forced us to go see that movie. We so you had a whole hour and a half of Scarface just waiting for you then. <laughs> yeah, so, so then he told me, and I ran back to David's house. Pop in the first tape and was like, oh my God, this is the greatest movie of all time. Next to Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and then um, later in life, probably in my 20s, I came across the Howard Hawks version. And what that did to me was, um, you know, when you're, when you're younger and you see a black and white movie or you see an old movie, you go, oh, it's not current. They didn't have the latest technology or the latest creativity or latest... That movie proves that creativity is timeless. You know, like it, the equipment's not gonna get in the way of somebody ex executing a vision, right? And there's certain things he did in that movie and staging one shots, you know, uh, long, long shots and shadows and, and um, what do you call that? Um, not um, symbolism. And every time someone got shot or killed in the movie, there was an X in the frame. Now the X could be the number on the doorway, the door you're about to knock on or it could be once that door opens there's a shaft of light in the back of the wall or it can be the saint valentine's day massacre that starts up on the rafters of, of, of wooden beams and there's seven wooden beams seven crosses in the wooden beam mm. and the camera booms down to a brick wall and you see a sh shadows of seven guys and you hear somebody off camera go get up against the wall last seven of you and then, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. and <laughs> It's them down. Now, if you're just watching a movie as a casual you know, fan of movies, you're not picking up on what Howard Hawks is doing here. You know? And it took me a few views to go, oh, my God, there's an X every time in the frame. Um, and now I know somebody's about to be murdered. Oh, this is fucking cool. You know? 
And, and I actually stole it. I stole it for, uh, we, we did Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. And it was like, it had a religious element to it. Yeah. So every time there was a, a murder or some shooting, there was a cross in the frame. You know, it could have oh, been wow. a VCR tapes packed up. It could have been this, you know, different designs all around. So if you watch it, it's based, I stole it from Howard Hawks, you know? Have you seen, and, have you seen The Departed? Yes. Because Marty and does the same thing. Up. It's filled yes, with X. Yeah. But, oh, that, but that's my, that, that's actually, you know, I, I told you, Josh, the other day ago, there, there's some um, sacrilegious thing I told you. Yes. Uh, about Kubrick. The sacrilegious thing I'll say on the record about Scorsese, because he's one of my favorites, he's the, the ultimate teacher, was I don't like The Departed. I, th- I think that's Marty phoning it in. There's no style. There's no Marty. There's no nothing. He was going to get his, his Oscar. He got his fucking Oscar. God bless you. But I, I know when he's phoning it in. And, and I didn't, I liked a lot of scenes in it. I like right. Jack and I like Leo and certain things. And I like, what's his name? Um, what's the other guy's Wahlberg. name? No. Oh, Wahlberg was great. He was, um, yeah. Matt, 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 um, oh, Matt Damon. Damon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I liked uh, Alec Baldwin. Yep. You know, there's certain things I like. I just, when, when I go see a Scorsese, and now I'm going off on a tangent, but when I go see a Scorsese movie, I want to be in his hands. Right. You know, I, wa- I want to feel his hands shape me, you know. And that one was like he was hosing down scenes. Well, it's a remake. A it's a remake of another picture. Yeah. Well, it's weird because it's a remake of a film that's sort of a love letter to Scorsese, which is the bizarre thing. So it ends up being the snake eating itself. Like, Infernal Affairs or something like that? Yeah. Or is it, which is a really good I, film. Yeah. Really good film. I, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I even made it through it. I think I attempted it. Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. But, uh, yeah. but I have to watch it again because of what you said, though, Joe. It's like someone told me this. And I hadn't, I hadn't well, when watched you, it after when, I've been told. When you, when you cop to it, it's hard to miss. I mean, it's like fascinating. You just, you just keep waiting for them to show up, you know. Oh, fuck, like, now okay. I gotta, okay, now it's a different movie. Now I got to go watch it. <laughs> because <laughs> that's, what, that's what this show is for. <laughs> there you go. You're, I'm writing it down. Um, the, the Howard Hawks thing, though, it's like there's all, another fascinating, I don't know if it's a, a rumor, but the George Raft coin flipping thing. Did you guys hear this story? Mm-hmm. That supposedly he thought he was a ter- terrible actor. And he said, I got to give this guy something to do. So I'm going to have him flip a coin to distract him away uh, from his acting. And, you know, it's in Bugs Bunny cartoons now, you know, yeah. gangsters and Bugs Bunny, <laughs> nah, 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 you know. Um, and then you have Paul Muni. And we can get into the, I think, the, was it the Hayes Code that came down in that? Or, you yeah. know, you have to the thing yeah. at the end of the movie, you know. Um, like Paul Muni, if you see. Um, Al Pacino in interviews talking about his Scarface, he was like, I just wanted to play that character. I just wanted to imitate Paul Muni. He was so great. He was so great. To me, he was theatrical and way over the top. And he was like, imitating you know, Desi Arnaz more than he was. Yeah, he was hamming it up. He, just, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was just hamming it up. But you know what's fascinating also about the movie is like if you take it beat for beat, you know, it's an Italian American gangster film, the, the relationship with the sister, the relationship with his buddy, you know, what Oliver Stone did with the update was, was masterful. He had all the big beats in there, but he did this Cuban crime way, Fidel Castro thing, and, and you know the Miami that was being built on cocaine thing, and turned it to a completely different movie. Yeah. Now they're remaking it at a universal, um, I've heard about this going around for years, and it came close to being made. I think, you know, that, that movie needs to be 50 years before you touch it again. Yeah. Because it was 1932 to 1983, I think. Yeah. So that's 50 years. And in, we're not there yet. We're not ready for another <laughs> Scarface. And what are they going to remake the 
the Palma Scarface, or are they just going to reconceive it? The uh, I heard it was going to be a Mexico Mexican oh, okay. angle, which is a fascinating angle. It's actually the the new version of the, the Cuban thing, you know. Right. Um, but you know, Narcos is a fantastic series that's on Netflix, yeah. and yes. I don't know if you can do any better than that. I mean, those those that was like mind blowing. Some of the, the first two seasons of that show, even the last, uh, I think three or four. I don't know how much they're up to right now. Yeah, we had uh, the showrunner from that show on a while back, Eric Newman. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic show, and kind of kind of makes a Scarface redundant, I would think. Sitting that's there. that's what I mean. Yeah, and also it has that interesting quality that The Godfather has and Scarface has is that once you think a character is like safe, they're not. Yeah, they just t- they just take them from you, like, and they can do that in limited series of more easily than um, you know a feature film. And that's one thing I appreciate about The Godfathers. You're like, you know, anybody can be taken. Once they establish that, you're kind of on edge the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Is that Joe Bob Briggs's line? That, like, it's a sort of great film that anybody can get it at any time. Yeah. And just, yeah. Or did he say that in Casino? Um, <laughs> Are you talking, about, you talking about Scorsese's Casino? Yeah. Joe Bob. Is yeah. Like, no. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. What is he? What, yeah. He's what the, the kind of country guy? Yeah. The, the guy that he tries to get fired? He's, yeah, he's a tall, hick kind of guy. Yeah, and then the, and the guy comes in, the sheriff guy comes in, and is like, we can't do that. <laughs> that's, a, that's another, that's a Scorsese film that, like, I didn't like at first. And then they, and then they grew on me. Because I was such a... We... Uh, yeah, I'll tell you why. No, show me <laughs> out, because I've only seen it the once, and I was so repelled by it, I've never gone back, but I've been thinking lately, I need to give it a uh, shot. It's, one of, the, it's one of those that every time I across it on tv i watch it really? me too me too yeah. it's exactly really? what it does to me the thing is about goodfellas and i didn't even like goodfellas at first because i was in film school and i was so into scorsese of the 70s mm-hmm. and and his technique from then that one of goodfellas i'm like ah the lighting uh the camera operation you know i'm just like this is not scorsese and then i got into the movie and really got it was like second what is, what is Bob first. Dylan doing playing that rock and roll stuff <laughs> <laughs> and then some of that has to, some of that you're right about that some of that has to grow on you if you're not into yeah. Clapton you know that particular thing at the end of Layla that you didn't know was at the end of the song because they, they didn't play it on the radio that he used as a theme for, for, yeah. for Goodfellas so there's a scene in okay so you have uh, Joe Pesci and it's the Billy Bat scene and it's the one where he pistol whips him after the shoe shining uh, insult. And if you look at that scene and look at the scene in Casino where he, he pins a guy in the neck in front of De Niro, same two actors, mm-hmm. it's almost shot for shot the same scene, shot for shot, right? right? And that greatly offended me, right? As, as a Scorsese fan, I'm like, fuck this. And it was bloated. To me, it was like a bloated movie when I first saw it. I'm like, this is bloated. Here he is with a lot of money and you know, all this bullshit. And then after I got past all that and years fall and I start watching it more, I'm like, okay, this is actually genius, this movie, because uh, one of my favorite cinematographers shot it, uh, Bob Richardson. And um, if you look at it from a purely technical standpoint, I have to separate the story and character for a second. Um, it's, it's the most dynamic camera operation I've ever seen in any movie in history. I mean, like it's tracking one way, pivoting one way, booming down, tilting up, and then rack, you know, pushing all the way back and then pushing all the way forward and then tilting up and then tilting down. It's like moves you've never seen in cinema before, right? Lighting, you, you've rarely seen. He did do some of it in JFK and some of his collaborations with, with Oliver Stone. 
And then there's a story of a guy who falls for a girl who doesn't really love him. And she's kind of like, you know, that, that type of uh, CD hustler who has a weak spot for this kind of pimp character played by that right wing actor. I love these guys. <laughs> Which is another one who shall not be named. <laughs> it just fucking, that, yeah, he just, he just veered off. He just kind of veered off, you know. He says some wacky things now. And I'm like, how, how does, how does, how does John Boyd do Midnight Cowboy right. and turn into this guy? Like, how do you do that? You know, that's such an artistic kind of statement movie on sexuality and, you know, male bonding and liberalism and drug use. And, and then you turn into this. So same thing with Jane Wood. But the, the point is, mm-hmm. the, 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 fascination, the fascinating thing with the characters and, and her, the Sharon Stone character, is like, she doesn't give a shit about Bob De Niro. She gives a shit about this two-bit hustler who's nobody that just finds a way. I mean, you know, that's, that's what happens in life. And then, you know, hubris, um, you know, is a big part of the movie. You know, the hubris of Bob DeMiro's character. And, and I don't know why I'm calling Bob. I don't know him like that. Um, and, then, and then Joe Pesci's character, the hubris that eventually gets him killed, you know. And then the hubris of Vegas, you know. Um, and then, you know, just the kind of delight in this kind of, like I said, this bloated budget. You know, Scorsese did do what he was supposed to do in that movie. He, he filmed it like a Vegas extravaganza or a drama, basically, you know. And, and there was some brutal stuff in there. There's some real brutal yeah. stuff in there. Like when they're getting baseball batted, they're baseball batting um, uh, Joe Pesci's character. Oh, where are the vines? Um, oh, that. And I, my editor saw the original version of that scene. Oh, no. The eye actually pops out. Yeah. yeah the eye actually pops out. Yeah. Oh. I guess, I guess part meanwhile, of my problem we're, with it. Yeah, go ahead. I said, meanwhile, we're getting trouble from the MPA for Menace Society and Dead Presidents. Right. And, we, we, and that's back when Jack Valente was, was the president or running the place. And he was always very fair and nice to us. But we were like, did you, did you guys just see a casino? Oh, so it's okay. But we, okay. we don't play the comparison game here. No, no. And that's you can't bring therapists in. You yeah. can't bring clip reels in. You can't, you know, we, we battled with them. Weird. I, I, I feel like there's some key difference there that uh, I don't know. It'll come to me eventually. I'll figure it out why they might have been harder on you guys. Oh, but, oh, uh, oh yeah. Okay, I don't know. Same we'll think about it. Were, Get back to me. <laughs> it's the same reason why, you, why, why a black man couldn't have a gun in the poster back in the right. early 90s. Right. And what the was, wasn't there? Reason. Oh God! There was some. What was the movie? Was it Eve's Bayou that had just the barest hint of of uh, uh, two black people having sex that just freaked them out and made it? You know, the it same year weird, the basic but, instinct know, was out. Oh yeah, and you know the thing about them. I don't know if you did this show. If you had these these troubles, like you know, we would play this game, and we we heard it from somebody else, one of our elder filmmakers, that you would have cuts ready. You would take two frames at a time out, and you'd have all like five cuts stacked up and you would you would submit it with two frames by the time they get to the fifth cut they're so beat down because they're not they're not timing the movie they don't know how much you've cut out well no they were they were actually very inept at what they were doing because we would we would at at corman's we would constantly be reinserting stuff that they had told us to take out like we showed them we'd show them the movie with the stuff missing and they'd say okay fine and then we put it all back in and we'd release the movie as is and they would never know because they did a didn't go to the movies and B, they didn't even have a moviola in their in their office, so they couldn't. Yeah, look. they couldn't frame count. No. I'm, but, but I'm glad you copped to that because I was not going to say this. Um, <laughs> we did the same thing, 
they they cut us down on, on our second movie to you know from an NC seventeen to an R. We went right back in the edit and we put all the frames back. And the, the head of post, it was Disney at the time. Um, I don't want to tell a story about how we got there, but he comes in and goes, I know what you guys did, but I'm not going to say anything. And that was that. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I love it. I wonder how many other people have done that over the wow. years. I'm sure. Yeah, they must, if Joe just said it and I just said it, it must be yeah. out there. And I, I, I was always scared to go on the record because I don't want them looking at my future stuff. You know, <laughs> well, but but now they're 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 practically obsolete. I mean, there's yeah. no with the with the coming of home video, the whole idea of you know barring people from going to see movies in theater became became preposterous. I mean, you know, if a kid if a kid wants to see an R-rated movie, he just goes to Billy's house and pulls out the tape. It, it doesn't matter. But, but it's also preposterous the whole idea that they don't tell you to cut things; they just say that that's a little rough there. Tone that that down. You know, it's a little heavy, you know. Well, you, the, get penal, you get penalized for intensity. And that's exactly yeah. what you tried to do is you tried to make an intense movie that you, and, it, and it works great. And I go, well, it works too good. And, and then, but, but there's nothing to cut out. We're not showing anything. But, it's too but intense. It's a, but you take, you, take, you take the shower scene from Psycho. And that's a filmmaker using technique to yeah. get the intensity, the, the intense feeling that you're actually seeing a murder and you're actually not really seeing, right? Right. Now you take that exact scene and, and put a black guy who's fully seen with a knife doing the exact same thing. You know, the subconscious, you know, I have to deal with the, the subconscious racism of the, the MPA um, because I, I, I'm willing to bet there's not one black or Latin person or Japanese person or Native American person on that board uh, watching these films. It's, it's a bunch of old people. Um, whether you're white or black or, or any other person of color, th their sensibility is, is different than the, the, rest, the rest of the country, basically. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to go on a tangent about that. Tangents, tangents are our middle name. <laughs> oh. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Let me go to a Czech film. Uh, Uri Hertz is the cremator. I don't know if you guys know this movie. Mm. Uh, there's a series, right? No, the, the, uh, no. This is this is actually in Czech. It's a, in Czech, it's a different name. Okay, it's right around the same time. It's right around the same time as uh, Fireman's Ball, uh -huh. Milos Forman's movie, which is another favorite of mine. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. I think Criterion definitely has it. I actually, yeah, yeah, they do. They do for website. And, and what's fascinating about it, especially if you, you're, you're in a country and you understand the culture of the movie, is different to you. 
like fires, fireman's ball, middle performance, fireman's ball. If you understand Czech culture, it's a completely different movie uh, because there's, I won't get into it. Anyways, because <laughs> it, might, it might sound like I'm saying something bad about the culture. Um, but the, the thing that fascinated me about The Cremator, which I think it's 67, it's the same thing that fascinated me about um, Howard Hawks, is a, a director who's doing a movie, it's pretty dark, and it's kind of, um, what do you call it, black, black, I guess a black satire comedy, whatever, um, who's not hosing down a scene, you know, he's not doing a wide, medium, close-up for everything. Every single shot was designed for that moment. Mm. And, and the second time I saw it, and it's a pretty twisted story about a cremator, a guy who's a cremator, who shucks and drives his way into the hierarchy of the Nazi party while the Nazis were reigning over the Czech Republic. And he takes his kind of twisted fantasies about what happens to your soul afterwards and kind of does some weird things in the movie in the end. I won't spoil it. Um, but I was most impressed by a, a kind of director who's shot for shot directing a scene. And the last time I saw it in a theater, strangely enough, was um, Halloween, the last Halloween movie with Jamie, Jamie mm. Lee Curtis. Yeah. And I, I didn't know who that director was, and I, I looked him up on IMDb. I'm like, oh, yeah, I recognize some of his movies. I go, when I saw the movie, I go, this fucking guy's hungry. This guy's fucking hungry. And I was laughing hysterically through that movie because it brought back my childhood. I'm jumping through movies right now, but it's the same reason. Is the, the director was not going in just showing up doing wides and mediums and close-ups. He was designing the scene shot to shot to shot. You know? right. um, that was fascinating. And then another thing, this transition, I'm really into transitions, um, whether they're kind of matching transitions or you know, stylistic transitions. But this guy did something with transitions where he's talking to you in the scene and he may hold up a paper like this and say, you see right there? And then it cut to him. And he's in a different scene showing it to somebody else. And you didn't right. know until they cut why you're like, oh, my God, this is genius. You know, like the, the construction of the film. And, and, and it gets down to like, Joe, I, I don't know if you question this. You know, more so it's a question with an editor than I have with a, a, a cinematographer director relationship. It's like, who did that? You know, yeah. is, it, is it a strong DP who just said, hey, director, let me take over and do this. And right. you're, you're fine. Or is it the director? Well, you never really know. I mean, it is a collaborative meeting. So, you know. Well, with Hitchcock and Scorsese, you know. Well, when the interviews come out and the guy says, I did everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, there's certain filmmakers you know, you see the signature, you know, a yeah. signature filmmaker, you film no matter what DP he's working with. Now, that DP may elevate him, like, and here again, I'm going to say something sacrilegious, and I don't mean any disrespect to the cinematographer that Scorsese worked with before, but I've never seen Scorsese like I've seen him with Robert Richardson. I'm talking about technique-wise. Like, that is a well-polished cameraman upping the game and mm -hmm. being influenced by this master director, whereas the other cameramen were, were doing some fantastic stuff in Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. But they weren't lighting the same way, Bob, and their moves weren't as complex as Bob. But this, the commonality is that the, it was still one signature voice. But this voice was kind of put on steroids with, with Bob Richardson. Right. It's funny, it was, when you were talking about transitions, I was about to ask, are you a comic guy and are you familiar with Alan Moore? And then I suddenly realized, I mean, yes, of course you are. <laughs> having, having done From Hell. But yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he does my favorite transitions of anybody, anywhere. Um, and comics. 
yeah. in comics. Yeah, I own some of those frames. I own, uh, you know, because they, they drew big and, and we were influenced by that. But the, the kind of transition stuff comes from like old cinema. And then mm -hmm. I started noticing that, that uh, you know, Coppola is a real transition freak. If you look at Dracula, mm. there's some fantastic transitions in that, you know. If you even look at, this is a very self-conscious transition, but if you look at Danny DeVito's Hoffa film, they're very self-conscious, but they're, they're, they're genius, okay? Like, I, I, don't, I would never want to take it that far because you're really taking the audience out of it. Right. And, um, and sometimes I do. Sometimes, like, a year later, I go, oh, God, would I do that? You know, you're, <laughs> you're falling victim to jerking yourself off, basically, right? But Coppola has some fantastic stuff. And you're talking about comic books and Alan, Alan Moore is what you said, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who's had a lot of his movies... Um, like V for Vendetta, mm -hmm. which I thought, I never saw the comic, but um, um, it, it was great. But he's interesting, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm just jumping around here, because he always talks shit about his remake, the, the movie oh, yeah. being made. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you fucking asshole. Like, he hates one. <laughs> you have the right not to have your movies being optioned, you know, your comics being optioned. You actually yeah. have the right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you can stop that from happening, but you're gonna act like this tortured soul living in a castle in Scotland or wherever the fuck he's from, and you know the long, you know Howard Hughes beard and this wizard's hat and all this bullshit, you know, mythology basically, and that's that's why we didn't get the Kubrick. Um, ah, yes, but it's it's promotion. It's, it. it's it's his brand, you know. It's um... it's just, I, I'm glad this is Zoom. I'm just doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to find out one day that Alan Moore spends most of his time just rewatching over and over all of the film adaptations of his work. And he actually loves them. That'd be funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually Absolutely loves them. loves them. Yeah. He sits naked in a tub full of grease and just, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> and, and money that he cashed from the studio. Right. Will Barrels of Warner Brothers money. <laughs> uh, Fucking lights his fireplace with Warner Brothers cash. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, do you want to get on to Kubrick? You had, um... Yeah, it's interesting. And, and Joe, I, I want to hear what you think of this, because this is a theory I have about, about Kubrick. And I, I got to preface it and disclaimer by saying I'm a massive fan. I'm not a fan of all of his movies, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of, of technique, as I said earlier, right? Um, and I partly will get into the sacrilegious thing I said to you on the phone. Josh. It's like, I, I'm just going to go on a rant real quick, okay? I'm, I'm always suspect when I see a, a film director holding a piece of film strip and, and there's a picture of him with an eyepiece thing. Look, and there's, a, there's one big guy around nowadays who's been caught doing the same thing. He's going like this with a strip of film, okay? I'm always really suspect of that because I, I think, well, the true way they judge that image is to project it, okay? Right. And someone's actually taken a picture of you looking at a piece of film strip. There's, there's, there's a deeper story here. Right. <laughs> so, are you saying it's staged? Not only is it staged, as are you know, we all get caught doing this shit. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the hands, making the hands. We all taking that stupid picture, right? Um, but it, it led me down this kind of like rabbit hole of, of, of myth making, and you know, moving to England and not flying planes, only wearing helmets, and all these kind of weird stories coming out. You can't do this around him. You can't do that around him. He, he does this, he does 80 takes, he does 90 takes for this, for this reason or that reason. And, and there's two theories I have about Kubrick. One is that he's extremely OCD, okay? That's one. 
And, 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 and the other is that he's definitely a genius, there's no doubt, right? And you can just tell. And, and the other is that he consciously built a myth because he's a chess player. And, and chess players play three or four moves ahead. And, you know, I'm not a chess player, but, you know, I've watched movies about it. Um, and he, he thought to himself, especially after Spartacus, and, and uh, you know, being kicked around in that movie and not being proud of that movie, how can I get power so nobody fucks mm-hmm. with me again? And he carefully went about creating this secretive myth about himself. There's another filmmaker I'm not going to mention because he doesn't deserve it that does it nowadays, who's big. But I just can't mention his name because it's contemporary. <laughs> um, who, who stole the playbook. And it's a genius playbook. Now, this is just my theory, Joe. I want to hear what you think. No, no, it's, it's interesting. It, 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 it's, a, it's a genius playbook. He's like, how could I be considered a genius, an auteur, or this or that, which all of them he is. But there's several of those guys and girls out there who are also. Like Lynn Ramsey, to me, is one of the most talented filmmakers around. Period. Right? Uh, I don't care what the crazy stories are I've heard about this movie that fell apart of that. When you see your, the movie she did with Joaquin Phoenix, it's amazing. It's the original Joker. It's the real Joker movie before the Joker. Mm. So, so he did this thing and then I watch his movies and I go, yuck, the lighting is terrible. But the composition is brilliant. Like maybe, like maybe he's a victim of the time period, you know, in that old kind of 60s, 50s hard light and I don't know, or he overlights for a steady cam. But I've never been a fan of his lighting. I've been a, fi- a fan of his style, of the feeling, of the experience. And I don't necessarily think he's a traditional storyteller. Of course, he proved that with 2001. Um, he, he, he has corny tendencies sometimes um, uh, that are kind of goofy, but it's Kubrick. And, and you look at some of the movies in the catalog and you go, well, they weren't critically held when they first came out. You know, and sometimes the audience liked it or they didn't like it. They may have loved Shining, but the critics didn't like Shining, right? So what is it about this that's going on? How come he had a holdover deal every year at Warner Brothers? He was getting paid millions while not making a movie for 17 years. You know, how come he had all this power over his prince? He could pull his prince from, from the UK with, with um, uh, Clockwork Orange. How come he had the power over all of his, his advertising? How did he get to that point? What did he do? What movie did it? And, and, and even if he did do a movie that did it, you have movie makers, filmmakers in the last 30 years whose movies have grossed 10, 30 times more than in Kubrick's, and they don't have that kind of power. So I pose a question to you, Joe. How did he do it? How did he, how did he get that power? Do you agree it's partly, he, he built them, he built them. Oh, no, I think, I, as, did, as did Hitchcock. You know, he merchandised himself into a character. With yeah, he branded show. himself, though. He, he, he was the face yeah. of it, though. That was a, a well, different... Well, he was, he was. And he didn't, there, there are no, no silhouettes of Kubrick sitting in his director's chair on the posters of his pictures. Um, but his movies are, well, they are pretty unique. I mean, they're not like anybody else's movies. You, you, don't, mm-hmm. you don't look like other people's movies. They're, they, mm-hmm. The subject matter is often not what anybody else would make. I mean, he made Lolita yeah. like 10 years before you oh, should God. actually have made it, you know? And, and he, he, he still did an amazing job because when Adrian Lyne tried it, it didn't work as well, even though he could do the things that Kubrick wasn't allowed to do, mm. you know? Uh, but His only timing misstep was a Full Metal Jacket. He was, a, a, he was stepped behind Platoon and a couple of others, but yeah. it's still an amazing film. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I think that I think he it was because he had mentors. He had these guys at Warner Brothers who believed in him, and they really gave him his head. And I, when I was when I was at Warner Brothers, I, I met with some of those guys whose job it was to take phone calls from Stanley uh, because the the ad running in the Topeka Sun uh, is is five five inches too short, <laughs> and that the, and that the light the the light at the uh, at the at the theater. It isn't up to up to the right lumens, so yep, he would actually yep, yep. send people around with light meters to measure the light, you know, in the theaters. And he would complain. Amazing. And he had people everywhere. He had a whole army of people who would report to him all the stuff that was going wrong or being done poorly. And Did you see the documentary about his assistant? About the assistant guy? Well, yeah, uh, Leon. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, and no, Leon, oh, there was one made, about the driver. There's also one about the driver. That one I, I haven't seen. It's fascinating because the driver is doing Leon stuff too. <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's a, he's a unique figure, you know. Yeah. But what do you think of him as a, a what, what would you, I don't want to get it like a diagnosis, but there's something, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the OCD is a simple explanation. For well, he's been, he's been called very cold and clinical uh, and because he's, a, and his attention to detail is pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and I, I happen to be a big fan of his early pictures because, you know, when he was just starting out, he was still a life photographer. Like Killer's Kiss? Not, not so much Killer's Kiss, but uh, the, certainly The Killing. Killing, which Paths I think of Glory. Is great the Killing. Paths of Glory is one of my favorites. And Paths of Glory is a great movie. And he had, George Krause was the cameraman. He only worked with him once, you know. Uh, and, oh, did, and, is that the story where he fired him? Is that the one he fired? I don't think he fired him. Maybe he the, did. It, it was a, there was some story I heard about. I forget which movie it is. I'm gonna look like an idiot. But he was a young director at the time, and this guy had done all these famous Hollywood movies. And he told them to. Oh, do it was the on the killing. It was Lucian Ballard on the killing. Yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah, know the story then. Yeah, but he, he didn't actually fire him. I mean, Ballard still finished the movie, but they they fought about everything. Well, they, there was part of the, my theory. There was a myth that came out of that that relationship. Like he just said, it, "Yeah, one of twenty-seven. The guy said it should be a thirty-five. It was a fight about a lens I heard. Yeah, yeah. And you're fired. I don't give a fuck who you are. <laughs> well, he was ballsy, you know. <laughs> well, he tried to take credit for Spartacus' script. Uh, That's, true. That? That's true. That's I mean, true. He was not modest in that department. Yeah. But it really pissed off uh, Douglas. Yeah. Who stood up for the blacklisted writer, I think, right? Well, yeah. And also, you know, when, when, when Kubrick came on that picture, Anthony Mann had already cast it. So, I mean, almost all the casting choices in Spartacus could be, if you look at Anthony Mann's movies, I mean, they're all the same people from his pictures. And well, that's uh, why he doesn't consider it his own? Well, he never considered it his own. He always felt like he was mopping up, you know, he came in and, and had to, and because they, they, they used material from Anthony Mann, which again, oh, wow. I didn't know didn't, that. he didn't want them to. But the movie uh, was wildly successful, right? Well, yeah, it was, it was, it's a good movie. And it, it, it rode on the Ben-Hur wagon, you know? I mean, these kind of yeah. pictures were very popular and had a lot of big stars in it. And it was got a great cast and a, an illiterate script. And it's a fun movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good picture, but it's not, but it wasn't his picture. And that was what was really- But it didn't it do something, didn't it didn't take him to the level he wanted to be at though? No? Well, like he was a making stepping. a big studio movie and, and obviously yeah, they asked yeah. him, you know, to, to make, uh, well, I get what was the next one, Lolita, I think. Mm-hmm. Or Strange Love. Wow, he was able to do Lolita after that. Yeah, yeah, wow. and then he did Strange Love. Strange Love, I have, I have a tough time with that movie. Really, I still really? have a tough time with. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know what it is. I love the. I'm, I'm disconnecting the, the now, Joe. Don't worry. 
<laughs> I really apologize. I didn't know. I didn't know. He, he, prefer, <laughs> no. he, he prefers failsafe. No. I, well, prefer, well, well, I prefer failsafe. What? Oh my I God. I'm done with all of you. I love failsafe. <laughs> no, it was like my mother was a big Peter Sellers fan. Huge. You know, Pink Panther and everything. I, I just don't get it. I, I love the fucking thing about uh, the whole monologue about coming. And the way it was written, you know, the, what's that character's name? Um, General Ripper. Yeah, Jack D. Ripper or whatever his name is. Um, yeah. And he's having that, that conversation, that monologue about not giving a woman your essence. Yes. You know, I do deny I give myself when I'm, this is, yeah, like, <laughs> I think that was genius. So that's my, my favorite scene in that movie. And everything else, I just can't, I, I love the design of it. That room, mm-hmm. the circular light and the circular table and the map and, I just—I tried watching it three times. I got really? through it. I might say that really? I didn't, but I just wow. couldn't. I couldn't. Well, maybe it's a it, generational thing. I don't know. Uh, maybe. I saw it when it was new, so I, you know, I saw it in in New York City the day it opened, and nobody laughed because it was everybody was still freaked out from the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And oh, so they, it was a, that's it was a taken, movie it right was there. Taken very seriously. Yeah. Even though, yeah. and, and even though you. when he was making it, he said, well, you know, this story is actually so absurd that I can't do it straight. I've got to, I've got to satirize it. And, but, but for the audience that was living it at the time, when they went to the mm-hmm. movie, they just saw, they saw drama, you know? They, they saw a lot of outlandish characters in a, in a drama that affected them, that ended badly. <laughs> you know, well, so I mean, that's just like, a little that's while the perfect... for people to get the joke. <laughs> that's a perfect way to see it, though. I mean, um... You know, I didn't have the benefit of, of, of that. But sometimes, I mean, look what we're going through right now. Maybe maybe I should watch it now. Well, I'm sure it'll be more relevant now, believe me. Yeah. And then, then watch a face in the crowd. That's even more relevant. Yes. <laughs> Depressing. I'm writing it down. Um, yeah, I told you I'm a cinephile. That's, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, you do all right. Yeah, you're doing all right there. I haven't yeah, mentioned the others. Like, really, show I mentioned that. the cremator yet, you know. Yeah, that is our first. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, what about, what about the Zadoichi series? The Japanese yes. series? Yeah. Oh, please. Uh, yeah, oh let's talk. I love those. I love those. And, um, Baby Kurt. Uh, I think it's like 20, maybe 26 movies. I forgot what the number is that that guy played. Something the, like, yeah, there's, um, and Criterion did a beautiful set of all of them. Um, which you, which you can't carry. Which one? Yeah, you can't. I actually have it. I actually have two box sets over here of, of DVDs, but uh, it's also on Criterion. But I had to research it for for Book of Eli because of the sword play and oh, sure. being blind, being blind, yeah. and all that. And when I found it, I just fell in love with the character. Yeah. And it's a series that, like, you know, there's some shitty movies in there. No, there's no doubt. He he does the same shtick every movie. But there's some genius stories in, in some of the movies. And and he also used, I think, um, two of the movies were shot by Kurosawa's DP. DP. And and there's some amazing intros to some of those movies but it's the care this is the one where i don't care about the style of the movie you know even though it's done well a lot of these are are, are done well i fell in love with the guy the guy who's playing him who yeah he's kind of like you know he's so meek and kind of like blind he's and everybody's trying to take advantage of him. he doesn't have yeah. you know you're used to like to share who's got this sort of manly tough guy kind of thing going on and do you want to describe for our listeners because some of them may, may not know the series do you want to just sort of tell them what zatoichi is because well, he, I guess the backstory in him is he used to be Yakuza and, or one of those crime things um, um, and, and was kind of what expelled for 
for some other reason. And he's now a masseuse uh, who has a gambling and alcohol problem. And he moves from town to town just trying to mine his business, make some money so he can gamble the dice at the dice game. And every episode, or episodes, I should say, well, it was a TV series too. Every movie, um, he's always in a gambling house. And they, they're on to the, the, the fact that he's blind or he, he doesn't hide it. And uh, they try to take advantage of him. And the cool thing about the movie is eventually it's like an incredible hook. You push him too far and he has to reveal that his cane, his blind man cane, is a sword. He pulls the sword out, does some quick move, and a split second later, somebody's pants fall down in half. Or the dice, he throws a dice in there and whips his, his sword out, and then the dice fall and they split in half because they, they had loaded the dice they were playing with. His ears start to jiggle in certain scenes because yes. all his senses are working. So his ears start to move. And, and you see this doesn't want any trouble, and he's also kind of supposedly a, kind of an apathetic, apathetic character who somehow a woman will work his way into his heart or a child and he'll protect them. You know, and he gets pulled into these situations that he doesn't, it, it's very much the incredible Hulk kind of storyline. You know, yeah. they, they use it very effectively in incredible Hulk. but there was one really fascinating scene. I forgot what, which movie it was in where they realized he was so skilled um, and he was using his, his ears for everything that they had these, knife-wielding bad guys, sword-wielding bad guys on both sides of the frame coming at him, doing battle with him. And then they would pull back and some drummers would come in and start banging on drums. Uh And then they would pull back and then the the knife-wielding guys would go back in and start doing battle with him and completely disorient him, you know. Um, And I stole a lot from this series. Like, you know, there's some really picturesque kind of what I call like these horizon shots, silhouette horizon shots that are profile. It's always moving one direction. It's like the old Western kind of, you know, staging. You know, the moving west is going from right to left. You know, whatever. Um, and there's some there's some beautiful photography, but I, I don't remember the series for the photography for, for the editing. I remember it for that that character. I don't know if I did a good job, Josh, with describing. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a fantastic series, and it's been really. I was trying to think. Has was that the first time? I mean, obviously, it was way before I was born, but I feel like it's sort of the first appearance of. Of that kind of because the blind character who uses their senses, you know, obviously he goes on to be Daredevil and there's been a lot of other sort of iterations. Um, I feel like that was kind of the first introduction of that idea was was Zatoichi. But they're, yeah, they're I mean, fantastic. Can... I mean, yeah, some of them are not great, but there's uh, some of them are pretty fun. There, in one of them, he meets uh, Tashura Mufun's uh, Yajimbo, yeah. I think, which is yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were doing Marvel crossovers <laughs> back then. I get confused though because I, I I start I start watching them in the, the 26 film series or however many it is. Yeah. And my girlfriend watches it. Oh, you're watching this again? I can't stand this because it's all in Japanese, you know, right. or whatever. So I start bouncing around to different episodes and I don't know if I've seen them all or I've seen them all, if I missed one or if I missed two. Right. But I've seen them all. It doesn't matter. It's not like they're carrying a lot of plot forward. No. Um, and then, of course, it's also, yeah, then, uh, you know, if you finish those and you still have a yen for more, there's, there's the... Uh, well, the, the, uh, the oh, yeah, Joe, yen, a yen for more. Come on, come on. Uh, there's the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub movies too, which are uh, oh, which, which was a graphic novel as well. That's the first yeah. time I actually saw that title. Yeah, yeah, those are those are fantastic. Um, and then there was there were a bunch of oh, there was a Rutger Hauer modern day version, yep. which was pretty yep. fun. And there's a and um, there was one more recently they did like the last 10, 15 years. Oh, there's actually yeah, the, the, with a girl. Yeah. No, there was a guy, the guy playing, playing, I never saw it. I just saw the trailer. 
Oh, that's where you know you're right. The actor came back, and then there's another one recently called Ichi, which is uh, I can't remember. She's supposed to be oh that one, in, yeah, which is a woman. one. Yeah, I saw that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, itchy, yeah, yeah. Not, itchy the, not Itchy the Killer. Not Itchy the Killer, no. Okay. No. And um, uh, which is pretty fun. And then there was a there was an Armand Asante one, which uh, <laughs> where it's, a, it's a Western. He's a blind gunfighter in the old West. Well, and there was Blind Man, you know, the- uh, Oh, that's right, Blind Man, yeah. Yeah, Tony, Tony Anthony. Tony Anthony. And Ringo well, look Starr. Well, at, look, look at the, the old series Kung Fu. Sure. He, yeah. his, his master was blind, but if you that's look at the right. character, if you look at the character of David Carradine, David Carradine, excuse me, he had pretty much the same kind of passive disposition of, of yeah. Badawichi. He wasn't a gambler or, or a masseuse or anything. But right. again, it was the Incredible Hulk kind of thing. You know, you had to push him. Yeah, well, it's, that's such an iconic kind of hero. The one who's, you know, the Billy stays Jack out of it type. and never picks a fight. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, don't mess with him. <laughs> yeah, to reveal his, his weaponry. Yes, exactly. No, those, those movies are so fun. Um, uh, do you want to, you, you had mentioned, I, actually, I'm just, I'm going to push you too, because we've actually weirdly, I don't think anyone's ever talked about freaking Metropolis on this show, Joe, have they? Nobody's even mentioned it. Which is insane. Yeah, it's on my not, list. You know, Cremator, I get. It's like, that's not one that's going to pop up every week. But yeah, no, but you mentioned that you, you might want to, I mean, you're, you're, you're a fan well, of Metropolis. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know how, if somebody sees that movie, how they can't be a fan of it in a way. It's yeah. very kind of abstract. It's experimental. It, it, um, and this is one reason why I'm a fan of Kubrick because I, I love his his symmetry, his his really OCD nature with symmetry, which I, I I have too. I don't have it like him, but you know when you're framing and the blinds are a little off in the back, you know everything has to be you know you know there's asymmetry and then there's symmetry, and you 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 do have to break up your symmetrical frames with asymmetry in order for for them to be felt. And if you look at um, Metropolis. There's a whole discussion about the VFX and how advanced, you know, the visual effects were in that, right? But if you look at it for pure visual, which is to me what the movie's all about, it's like it's the ultimate screensaver outside of Baraka. Um, um, uh, it, it just just look at what I do is I look at the corner of the frames. I always look at the corners when, when I see somebody. It's a study in, in symmetry, and I go, "Oh my God, fuck!" Oh, uh, 1927 again. Here I am being wrong and being ignorant it's like you know creativity is timeless you know yes you could of course you can have great symmetry in 1927 um there was photography around for many 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 years before that um which is probably where a lot of this i don't i don't know the history of the movie um i don't know uh, whether again it was the cameraman or the director um but i'm just blown away by the frames and especially the iconic one of that robot lady mm-hmm. And those large city shots with all the traffic and just a mind-blowing movie. And you can see it, it influenced Blade Runner. Sure. You know, yeah. there's shots in Blade Runner. You're like, oh, my God, really must have been influenced by that. I mean, a ton of filmmakers have been influenced by that movie. Um, I haven't taken any real, not yet. I will, that's, I'm talking about stealing something. Um, other than just, the, you know, the study of, of, of symmetry and design and this thing that I call, as I got older, you know, when I talk to my crew, the production designer, the cameraman, or women, I say, you know, I've, I've learned, because now I'm 48 years old, I didn't know this when I was 20, making my first movie, uh, that the, the, the human eye wants simplicity when you're telling a story. And you have to do this thing I call the clip art theory of, of cinematography. 
which is clip art that's, you know, the silhouetted clip art. When you type into Google, clip art silhouette of a gun, a stop sign. You, you turn your head and within a split second, you get it. You're not digging inside the image, basically, right? And that's what Metropolis is like a perfect example of, you know, and what I learned from that movie is, if, especially if you're a style guy and you, you love style and directors and films, and you know that you have to tell a story, you know that the audience has to engage in an emotional level with characters. Don't let the images actually get in the way in the wrong way. Um, mm. They can get in the way in the right way, like Hitchcock or Scorsese. Um, but taking the lesson of pulling things out of frame, um, simplifying the frame of telling the eye exactly where to go, where the, where the person's head is in, in the frame. And also uh, something I, I learned from Zadoichi, um, as, as well as um, some other film, uh, use silhouette a lot. Um, you, you'd be amazed at um, how powerful, you guys already know, um, you know, powerful esteem can, can be just in silhouette with two or, people talking. Or in shadow. Yeah. You know, or in shadow. Like yeah. my, Michael Cortese used to do all the time, oh, you know, yeah. and it's yeah. like this, like, there's the, the sword, half the sword fight in Robin Hood is shadows. Yeah. 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 I did, yeah. I did a sword, I did a knife fight and it came from Zadoichi, but uh, in an underpass. And I had to figure out a way, how do I get these Denzel and the bad guys into the underpass? And we came up with some, I don't know, some tomfoolery. <laughs> and, and we did this whole fight in, in silhouette. And the only reason why I did it was on a necessity because of the, the MPA beating up on us for, for 20 years. Uh, and I knew limbs were going to, I knew limbs and blood were going to fly. And I'm like, <laughs> let me just do this in one shot. Then I can show the limbs and, and blood and everything just in silhouette. And the MPA is not going to have a problem with this. So it was almost like working with the Hayes code basically in mind. Um, also because in shadows, everybody's black, right? Yeah, there you go. You know, B BLM. <laughs> Silhouette's lives matter too. That's right. <laughs> but no, I mean, to, my, to, the, to the overall point about Metropolis, it's like that, again, that's the lesson. It's like that, that filmmaker and cameraman or woman, um, I don't want to get into Lenny Reichenstahl, but what a genius she is, you know, Sadly, because um, she did a lot of that same stuff. I'm talking about the silhouette, mm. kind of sim simple images in the, the Olympic movie. What's it called? Olympiad? Olympiad. 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 Uh, and then, you know, again, I'm just scattershot right now. because It's all why I love these types of movies. Is if you look at Lenny Reifenstahl, if you look at Metropolis, if you look at the Zadoichi series, they have nothing to do with each other other than one thing. It's like the simplicity of the image. Mm. And, and, and Lenny Reibenstahl, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing her name right, yep. um, um, she, she was also a study in, in symmetry. You know? And my whole thing about like, the, the Hitler regime and the Nazis, it, 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 it's a sick, sick piece of history. And if you look at him in, in a satirical way, which you know, movies have done, it's like, he's a fell production designer. Yeah. That's all he is. He got rejected from the Viennese School of Art. I've seen his art. It's pretty good, the countryside stuff. But, it, yep. but the story is he got rejected because he didn't know how to uh, do the human form that well, uh, which is, you know, kind of Nostradamus and whoever figured that one out, right? Um, but, but if you look at him with her, mm -hmm. he's the designer, as well as Hugo Boss and Volkswagen and Bird. Man Porsche. <laughs> and she's the she's the director and right. they're, they're, they're cut from the same cloth of that that time period come on 1927 metropolis 
and, and Lenny was doing movies before that regime. You know, and is it Metropolis German? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Oh, that may have been one of her. I read about this thing about she had three mentors. That may have been one of them. Was Fritz Lang, Lenny Reifenstahl's mentor? She, she had she had three male director mentors. Um, and I read this long article of Don't quote me on it, but um, it, one of them may have been him. I don't know. I, I'm like I'm being like Donald Trump. You know, they say they say people are saying people say, say. People, people say yeah, people are saying yeah. I might you, know, you can fact fact check me. You know? A lot of people are talking about Lenny Reifenstahl more now. She's done great. She's yeah. doing great work. Yeah, 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 yeah. like Frederick Douglass. You know, he's still yeah. really, he's doing good stuff. That was it. Yeah. There's good, hey, there's there's good filmmakers on both sides. On both sides, there's good filmmakers. I I would say that Lenny Reifenstahl is an argument for why um, one can get too carried away focusing on style to the exclusion of other things. Though that would be. Oh, I, I would totally agree with that. <laughs> Completely agree with that. I mean, like, but also her fascination with the like the male and female perfect body. Mm. You know, her she's obsessed with like the perfect Germanic form during that time period. And you know, later in life she moved onto the African uh, figure. Um, I don't know if she's just doing a clean up on aisle seven on that one, but <laughs> I am. I am not. I am not up on her. As, uh... I want to say as I should be, but I'm. I'm well, okay I mean, here's the thing: you should know. It's like you know, it, and Joe. What's interesting to me is that it's 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 a required watching in film school. Yeah, it's required. You know, she was around for quite a while, and uh, in her yeah. later years, yeah. was yeah. Uh, she just went, recently died. Went to a lot of film festivals and talked about making Triumph of the Will and. You know how how little Georgie Lucas was <laughs> impressed with it. <laughs> Obviously. Oh, well, okay. I mean, okay, we forgot about that part. Yeah, but um, I mean, she's an, she's an interesting figure. But what do you think? Did you go to film school? I went to art school, and there was Just, a, there was a, a burgeoning attempt to make films with two cameras and thirty students, and uh, did I they make exactly you watch call it film school? No, I did. did we they, did have a, we did have a. Uh, teacher who, who, uh, who introduced me to a lot of uh, older films, which was great. Um, I mean, what do you guys think about that, though? What do you think about, like, it's required in film school? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I did two years of film school before dropping out and coming to LA to get paid to learn how to make movies, which seemed to be a much smarter way to go about it for, for my money. But um, I do, yeah, that was where I saw, you know, I heard about that stuff. I was a, a, a cinephile and I read all the books and everything. And um, but it just seemed to me that sort of life was too short to, you know, there's so many movies I could be watching without having to watch Triumph of the Will or, or Birth of a Nation. <laughs> but I saw those oh, in, wow. in film school. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, think they're, uh, I think they're important historical artifacts. And I think, um, you know, they're made by filmmakers who clearly were at the top of their game and there's much to be learned. And I'm, you know, at the end of the day, all, all any of us do to, to a great extent is we steal from those who came before us. And are you saying we can only steal from people who are morally, you know, pure? It's like, let's, let's steal from the bad guys, you know? Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, if you don't want Hollywood history, there's a lot of bad guys. Like, yeah, I, wa- I watched the, what was it? What was that Sam Peckinpah movie? The, the Wild Bunch. Uh-huh. I saw the, what was the other one? Because um, I was never a big fan of it, so you, I can't. I, I did like uh, Straw Dogs. Uh, I was okay. say Straw Dogs. Okay. Oh, okay, I love Straw Dogs. What was there was two two the, the the two big bloody ones. There was Wild Bunch, The Getaway, Wild Getaway, 
Was there another Western? Um, um, it was uh, Alfredo Garcia. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Oh, it's, it's Wild Wild Bunch. It's Wild Bunch that's known for the. the but that's the, that yeah. was the big one. Yeah. Yeah. The Blood Ballet. I, I came to him late in life, and, and because everybody was comparing our movie, you know, our bloodletting to to his. Oh sure. Um, yeah. And I go, hmm, I don't know who this guy is. So I go watch it in the theater. It was like one of those revival kind of things. And, and it's the first time I felt like a, a director was a racist, uh, drunk asshole. And I go, I don't know who this guy is, but I can tell he's a racist, drunk asshole. <laughs> <laughs> a talented racist, drunk asshole. Oh, yeah, that's the point, though. <laughs> See, that's the point. It's like... If you're talking about Lenny Reifenstahl, and I, I, I was really kind of fascinated with your answer about history and whether we should be learning yeah. this stuff. Because, yeah, I mean, Hollywood is fucking racked with just douchebags and talented, a lot of talented douchebags. Yeah. Well, and, but a lot of, or, or a lot of people who weren't even making movies that by our standards today um, are yeah. kind of horrifying. And it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, Everything well, just about this, us was horrifying 50 years ago. Just get the just get the Blazing Saddles disclaimer and put it on the front of everything. That's, that's what right. I've been saying for oh, months. Every picture, every Richard picture Pryor. that came out before last year should have a disclaimer. But Blazing Saddles, like you know, if you understood and you do, I mean, Richard Pryor was originally supposed to be in that movie, and and co-wrote and it. he co-wrote it. And, co- and co- that was my point. He co-wrote yes. it, and you know, if I know that, then I don't need a disclaimer. But that's, yeah, how do you, like, pretty much every joke in that movie that would get you canceled today is a Richard Pryor joke. Yeah. Mel Brooks wasn't writing that stuff. But also every, every, every use of the N-word in that picture is by, made by a jerk or somebody that you're not supposed to like. Right. Well, well, this also, this is actually fascinating. You're bringing it up, I think, Joe, this is actually an important thing to talk about. Um, Because of the social climate that's going on in America and, and, the the n-word in movies right which has been a long debate whether a white filmmaker or a black filmmaker or this filmmaker or that writer or this writer comedy which is one thing like you, you go into like tarantino i guess can lean towards comedy and we've had our kind of run-ins with him in, in the papers about the word and he went on the show once and said why are the hughes allowed to say the n-word but i can't say it which is a I, I, <laughs> Why you can't say it is one thing. No, we never said you can't say it. I, I actually, there's, there's something fascinating about cinema to me. It's like, if you see Scorsese making a movie with Italians who use the word in the back room, you go, that's fucking real. That's fucking awesome. Okay. If you see somebody that's just using it for clown effect, you know, and, and Sam Jackson's standing in the scene that he's, he's using the word and Sam Jackson's not saying anything in Pulp Fiction. It, it's a little problematic. It takes me out of the movie. Not to say that he doesn't have a right to do it. I think he completely has the right to do it in any way he wants to do it. And I thought it worked wonderfully well in um, Django because the time period and the way that they played with the word. And he knew that the tag was on him, that every single one of his movies, he used that word, right? Except for this last one, um, Hollywood, where he picked on the Mexicans instead in Bruce Lee. <laughs> but as a, as a filmmaker, I and mean, I'm sure you guys agree, like he fully has the right to do that. I'm, I'm not, I would never want to take that away from a man or woman to, to, to express themselves. They have to deal with the fallout of that. But I prefer when it comes to words like that, it's either a Mel Brooks type thing or it's a Scorsese type thing because I don't want to be taken out of the movie. You know? Right. Um, and it, it, and that, I, I felt it was important just to pause on that because I don't want the, the, 
misconception that, you know, you know, probably a lot of us are like, oh, you can't use that word. You know, let's stop policing. Yeah, but there, there's an effect of, um, you know, I did a, uh, the thing I did with Lorenz, we just finished our second season, where it's, a, it's an audio drama with Lorenz Tate and Lawrence Fishburne and uh, amazing cast, Amari Hardwick, and, and uh, it's set in the numbers rackets in the 40s. And, you know, I wrote every episode, I had this amazing cast, and there was this, you're not not going to use that word. It's 1947 in Chicago, they're dealing with these, you know, the racist mayor, but you also want to be judicious. I don't know. I, I found it. I didn't. I didn't find it constricting to to have to think more than I used to have to think about that word because you use anything too long. I've died too often. I've seen so many movies where the actor just you know inserts fuck into every third word, yeah, yeah. as they can, and it's yeah. like I'm deeply unoffended by the use of that word. It does not bother me. But when someone talks that way, you just it throws you out of the film because it's so clearly uh, they're just sort of getting you know, excited about being able to use the line or something. So it, it, it ended up kind of imposing a more judicious use of the N word. So it had more effect. You know, I didn't just have every scene. There was a white character tossing it out. It was like, drop it here, drop it there. And it has an impact. And it's a time and a place where people would use that word. But, um, well, so that sounds actually quite smart. <laughs> I, but I think, yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know. I'm I'm always okay with these pendulums because they're going to swing back and forth and eventually we'll sort of find a place. But, but yeah, I agree. There's just yeah. moments when you're seeing a movie and, you know, it can be that word or some other word and you're just like, it's somehow. Well, like the, like the word, like the word, I, I'm sorry, probably a lot of people will find it, but I'm going to bring it up. Like the word cunt. Ah. Uh, okay. So I get into a lot of heated debates about the word cunt because I'm a Carlin fan. I love the word, the seven dirty words. I'm a prior fan. I'm a Dave Chappelle fan. Uh, I'm a Mark Twain fan. And, you know, all these guys believe words are just words, you know, but, you know, if applied a certain way, they can be more harmful. Um, but I always have the question about why certain words are taboo. So you have asshole, you have dick, you have motherfucker, you have cunt. Why is cunt in America such a strong word? But in Britain, yeah. it's not, right? Exactly. Well, that's, yeah, because I always fall back on I spent a year living in England in my mind every time I hear that It's word, a period. It's, it's a period at the end of a sentence. But it's, but, yeah, they, men refer to each other. The word you can't say in England, I think it's changed, is fanny. Oh, my Fanny's God. Fanny's as England. offensive there. But, as... <laughs> but, but you can't, you can't, so if you're referring to a woman, you shouldn't, first of all, be calling her names. <laughs> but if you're calling her bad names, you can call her a bitch, you can call her a cunt. You most likely won't call her an asshole. That's reserved for men. That's a yeah. You, you you call him a man a dick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a sex assigned words, right? But what I still can't figure out why that one word, it, other than it sounds very really harsh, it's very yeah, cutting word. It's a very blunt because word. Because if you use a movie, huh? It's a very blunt word. Yeah. yeah. But if you use it in a movie, the audience is going to go, oh. Yeah. You know, it's up there. Yeah. Which to me, I mean, you know, this is where I live as a writer. It's like, which is a reason, you know, there are words you sort of have in your, in your bag that you can pull out. Of <laughs> you don't want to use that one 500 times because the one time you use it to effect is going to get blunted by, by overuse. But I love it when you see it in like uh, with Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast. Oh, God. Yes. Oh, I mean, the way it was masterful. I do, oh, you fucking can't. How do you want it? Can't. <laughs> <laughs> what do you take me for? I can't. 
The um, yeah. <laughs> well, for somebody who claims to not be a cinephile, it seems to me your tastes are pretty broad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's like my musical taste, but you you know it's like I realized as I got older, uh, growing up in a biracial household helped. Mm -hmm. You have a black father who likes James Brown, and you have a white mother who likes Creedence Clearwater and Jimi Hendrix, and she likes Peter Sellers, and he likes the kung fu flicks at the Fox Theater and Cheech and Chong. Right. You know, uh, like I was being taken to very inappropriate movies in the Fox Theater in Detroit by my father um, at age, ages five through uh, eight. And I remember he took us to one movie and he was a, a movie theater narcoleptic. So he would always fall asleep. <laughs> and we're watching this movie about a guy who's a choreographer, has open heart surgery, just chain smoking, there's nudity and dance numbers. And my father starts snoring and we're just amazed that we're seeing nudity. You know, and a woman taps him like, sir, sir, do you think maybe it's not appropriate for your kids to be watching this movie? Huh? Huh? What? And then he just goes right back to sleep like, what the fuck is this bitch doing? You know, <laughs> fucking up our game, right? Well, it's all, all that jazz, right? Bob the Bob Fosse, right? Thing, yeah. right? Uh, I haven't seen the movie since. <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to ruin the, the image I have of the nudity. And the shocking, I just remember a shocking open heart. It looked like an open heart surgery scene. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. It's a good movie. <laughs> but I haven't seen it since then. But none but of that there you go, that's your the answer. Impact, but it did I still don't think I'm a cinephile. I just think that, uh, yeah, like you said, Joe, like the, the, taste, the, taste is, the taste is all over the place. I think that's, well, the that's perfect for our show. Absolutely perfect for our show, yeah. Um, Albert. Thank, thank you, you man. so much. Thank you so much for uh, staying up so late. <laughs> I hope I don't sound like an idiot because, you know, the, the people listening don't have the advantage of knowing we see each other and we're using our, we're using our hands and shit. That's so. right. No, I try to stay on top of that. But like my mother always said, I have a face for radio. So. Ah, terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible woman. Uh, well, Josh, Josh, Josh cuts all these episodes down to 15 minutes anyway, so don't really worry about it. <laughs> Absolutely not true. But uh, thank you, sir. Oh, good. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thank you guys for having me. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.